And as you can see on your um, bulletin, James 1 will be our first stop, but we'll also be going to uh, Genesis 1 and Titus 2. And so if you want to go ahead and put placeholders there, if you're a preparer, uh, prepare. So this Sunday is Gospel Sunday, (coughs) as is every Sunday at Grace Fellowship. But this Sunday is a little bit different, uh, as we'll be looking at God's good design for human sexuality. Uh, or the gospel of human sexuality, if you will, the good news. Uh, But since that doesn't have a a great ring to it, the title on your bulletin and kind of what we'll be ringing the bell of today is Freedom from Our Feelings. Freedom from Our Feelings is the title of today's sermon. So uh, before I begin, I do want to offer a warning about this sermon. You probably got an email about this. Uh, This sermon will obviously deal with topics uh, biblical sexuality, since that is the, the theme. So if you do have a young person with you and you showed up not realizing uh, this, this might be a sermon you want to listen to first and then let them listen to, uh, depending on where you're at. So I uh, just want to make that clarification up front. And I think since our uh, internet crashed about 20 minutes ago, <laughs> this sermon won't be streamed on Facebook, but it will be, uh, it is being recorded, and so you can listen to it later if you would like. So with that being said, I'm going to pray and ask God to bless our time together. Father, we do thank you for this morning. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for caring for us. God, thank you for designing us with skill and insight and creativity that we can't fathom. God, you've done a wonderful work, and we thank you for this. And as we are prideful and arrogant taking what you've done and twisting and marring it and trying to make something else that we think is better. Uh, God, thank you for not killing us, not destroying us, but God, thank you for showing us grace and forgiveness and sending Jesus to come and rescue us. God, as we just sung, now in his life we live. In his death we live. In his resurrection we live. And his righteousness is ours. And even though, God, we're still in this time of doubt and this body that is prone to sin, God, your grace is sufficient not only to continue to forgive but to empower that we may be glorified, that we may overcome our nature. And as your word says, become victors that will receive the crown of life. So we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your work. And we pray that this morning, no matter what happens during this service, uh, you would capture our minds and hearts and transform us more into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, that spotlight I don't think was here maybe before, I don't know, maybe it was. The lights went off, I think, while I was praying. I had my eyes closed. Uh, If you didn't, shame on you, but um, (laughs) I could just tell that something happened. Uh, So are we good? Everything's good? Okay. Somebody saw a power truck out here, and I don't know, those guys probably just snipping wires this morning because they're bored, and they got our internet already, and now maybe they got in our power, but we'll see. Um, All right. Without further ado, here we go. Um, 
1993, let's go back to the 90s. 90s were good, right? In 1993, one of our country's most popular musical artists at that time released a mega hit song called Bump and Grind. Yep. If you know the song, then you know the artist, R. Kelly. Now the song begins with this famous line. My wife told me I'm not allowed to try to sing this, all right? <laughs> and after I just worship behind Ellie, he would agree, don't do that. Um, but, but here's the line that begins the song. My mind's telling me no, but my body, my body's telling me yes. It's the famous line, and probably know that. If you haven't, you'll probably look it up today. But in 2008, 15 years after that, hit song debuted, R. Kelly would be convicted on 14 accounts of child pornography, and just this past year, R. Kelly would be convicted of racketeering, sexual exploitation of a child, kidnapping, bribery, and sex trafficking. Now, you might be wondering, why are you telling us this? What's the point here? Well, the point is, R. Kelly's song in 1993 gets at exactly what our current culture is pushing, which is listen to your body. In order to be your true self, you must live out how you feel. Choosing not to follow your feelings is being inauthentic. It's disingenuous. And it's not really the real you. This means if you're a boy and have romantic feelings for other boys, that's wonderful. If you're a girl and you feel like you're supposed to be a boy, then dress and act like a boy because that's who you truly are. And this message isn't just for adults, it's for preteens. Many children today are being given hormone-suppressant drugs around the age of 11 in order to delay puberty and give them more time to decide their gender. See, our culture is on a hell-bound path as it continues to normalize and publicly embrace the most wild and lewd feelings that people have. So today... My aim is to first show you what the scriptures have to say about these kind of feelings that our culture is obsessed with. Secondly, I want to show you God's clear design for human sexuality. And lastly, hopefully we'll see Jesus' hope that he gives through a better way. Now, the reason that we're dealing with this at Grace Fellowship on Gospel Sunday is because as our world continues to grow more and more radical in their ideologies, laws are being passed that seek to restrict our public Christian belief and practice. As Carlton mentioned a few weeks ago, on January 8th, just a few days ago, legislation was made law in Canada that outlawed the use of conversion therapies. This is according to NPR. The bill defines conversion therapy as any practice, treatment, or service designed to change or repress a person's sexual orientation, 
gender identity, or gender expression. Those techniques can range from talk and behavior ther- behavioral therapy to medical treatments. Critics say these practices cause harm to its victims and is based on the false premise that sexual orientation and gender identity can or should be cured. Now, I do want to jump in for a moment before we go further and tell you that there are some really weird people out there, some who call themselves Christians, that believe confusion about one's gender can be cured by things like maybe a good old waterboarding or some other ascetic self-harm type practice. And what I want to tell you is that we at Grace Fellowship would reject such notions. In fact, we would say those are awful and will harm individuals. But I do want to present you now the exact wording of this law so that you can see where the problem lies. This is what the law says. Conversion therapy propagates myths and stereotypes about sexual orientation, gender identity, and gender expression, including the myth that heterosexuality, cisgender identity, uh, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions. Now, there might have been a lot of new words for you in that piece of legislation, so let me make sure you didn't miss the key statement. That law says it is a myth and stereotype that your gender expression should conform to your sex at birth. It's a myth. It's a stereotype. Now, more information to help clarify. Some of you are still going, what are we talking about? In 2022... Sex is a term used to define your biological anatomy. While gender is a term used to define what you believe yourself to truly be. And as we said earlier in 2022, what you believe yourself to truly be trumps what you biologically and scientifically are. Now I do want to just say that Believing yourself to be something that you're not isn't always bad. In fact, this kind of thing happens in all the staff pastor's homes. Some of you are wondering, where are you going with this? (laughs) Well, Lottie Moon Weathers believes herself to be a unicorn. Piper Hughes believes herself to be a royal princess. Sanders Ryan is convinced that he is Marvel superhero Black Panther. (laughs) And we celebrate these things as parents. These kids even got gifts this Christmas to celebrate their imagination. However, Lottie Moon does not have unicorn DNA. Piper doesn't have royal blood. And Sanders has no superpowers. And there will come a day where these children accept these realities. In fact, they already kind of know they're just pretend. But what is happening in our culture, because we have no foundation for truth, is that social imaginaries are taking over. A social imaginary is what one perceives and therefore believes to be true. 
This is why we hear statements all the time like your truth and my truth. Objectivity is quickly becoming a thing of the past. Now how or why is all of this coming about? Well, think back to our example of R. Kelly. He chose as a grown man to pursue his feelings or what his body was telling him over what he knew to be objectively true and right. And this led him to do some heinous things. And this is where I believe the heart of this issue lies. So look at James 1, verse 12 through 15 with me. It says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now James has been called the Proverbs of the New Testament because the brother of Jesus drops wisdom like this all throughout his book. But there are two words I want you to key on in this passage. The first comes in verse 12, and it's the word trial. This is the same word James uses back in verse 2, and there he tags on to it trials of various kinds. So according to the commentator, Douglas Moo, what James has in mind here is any difficulty, any difficulty in life that would threaten our faithfulness to Jesus. Any difficulty. This includes a brain tumor that someone's child is born with. The loss of a career. A disease that causes your body to not work properly. Heartbreak from the loss of someone that you love. Mental distress from a chemical imbalance in your brain. Predispositions to a certain sins. External deformities that your culture mocks. Even a crime committed against you. And I could go on and on, but hopefully you see the pattern. None of these things I just listed, listed are self-inflicted or chosen by the individual. They are all trials that people face in a seemingly random manner. And it's these kind of trials and a whole host of others that James says we must remain steadfast through. Why? So that we will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. But look at what James says next. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now, don't miss this. James is not going on to some new idea here. And that's easy for us to think because often we think of trials and temptations separately. We wrongly assume that certain temptations are in our life by our own choosing. I've heard people tell me things like, they've never been tempted to get drunk because they don't drink. 
And there is a certain wisdom here that abstinence is a very needed and effective strategy against temptation. However, you cannot escape temptation as long as you live in this body of death. Listen to what Paul says. He says in Romans 7, I see in parts of my body another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in parts of my body. Doesn't this sound eerily similar to the R. Kelly lyric? My mind is telling me no, but my body's telling me yes. Here's the point. Because of our sinful nature that we have inherited, every one of us is naturally dysfunctional. We were created to image our creator, God. And we don't do that. Now, for some of us, our dysfunction is more socially acceptable. It may be that we are greedy, which leads to a real hard work ethic. Or it might be that we are vain, so we always look nice. Or it might be that we are brash and domineering, which people respect as a strong leader. Or it might be that we're a people pleaser, so that people always find us agreeable. But these dysfunctions also present themselves in ways that are not socially acceptable. Things like lust, murder, pedophilia, lying, homosexuality, cross-dressing, and stealing. Point is, we are all prone and susceptible to all kinds of temptations because we have dysfunctional desires and passions. And this is the second word I want you to see in verse 14 and 15. Look at this. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own what? Desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James clearly says that our temptation come from our own disordered desires sometimes called passions. And when we give in to these passions or desires, that is called sin. And sin produces death. Now, how much do the scriptures talk about these sinful passions or desires? A whole bunch. And I honestly don't have time to give you all the scriptures right now, but let me just hit a few. When Jesus is explaining the parable of the seed or the souls, whichever one you like, in Mark 4, this is what he said about the third seed. He said, the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires, there it is, for other things enter in and choke the word and it proves unfruitful. When rebuking the Pharisees in John 8, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. In Paul's letter to Timothy, he writes, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Titus says that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to our passions and pleasures, same word, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. And dozens of accounts through the epistles that say these passions bring forth things like 
sexual immorality, idolatry, covetousness, impurity, drunkenness, orgies, scoffing, reviling, swindling, homosexuality, and adultery. These passions that we all have lead to rampant wickedness. Therefore, they're not to be embraced. In fact, for most of world history, it's not been socially acceptable to openly pursue these passions. This is what is precisely so different about our cultural moment. Our culture is approving of and embracing publicly that which it should be ashamed of. The idea here in James 1, 12 through 15, is to say that no matter your circumstance, no matter your predisposition, no matter your angst or pain, no matter what your culture says, whatever your trial is, if you stand, you will receive the crown of life. For what you're going through is a result of sin in the world and in you, but if you choose to act out of your passion or what your body is telling you to do, a.k.a. your feelings, there's no life for you on this path. No life. So this foundational understanding is extremely important as we discuss biblical sexuality. First, because if we don't understand where this kind of sin is coming from, then we won't be able to speak prophetically into our culture, into the people who live around us. And secondly, we won't understand our feelings. But it's also very important that we address this issue with humility. You may not have the same feelings as someone else, but that doesn't mean that you can't relate or understand. We all have disordered feelings, all of us. Now that we have an understanding of what brings about these kind of dysfunctional desires, please turn to our second passage today, Genesis 1. And we're going to be in verse 27. And it's here that we will look at God's design for human sexuality. Genesis 1, 27. It says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We're just going to stop there. Now, on this next part, I want to try to be as crystal clear and simple as I possibly can. And the reason I want to do that is because it's imperative that you know and understand the Christian perspective on God's design for sexuality. It's imperative. So let me be as, as clear as I can from this passage. Number one, God created man. If you write in your Bibles, just underline that one. God created man. This tells us that there is someone who is above us. Psalm 103 says, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are whose? His. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. So we know that we are not our own. 
There is someone who we all belong to. There is a supreme authority who rules over us and has every right to dictate how we live. The way Casey and I explain this to our kids is pretty simple. Our kids will tell you if you come over to our house, or you might find them arguing about this, that they are a boss. But they are not the boss. Teaching article adjectives there. And they are important. We have autonomy, and we have rule over certain things, but we are not the boss. We are not free to do whatever we like. And that's so important that we get this. Any authority that we have been given must be wielded under the authority of the ultimate authority. That's number one, very simple. God created man. Second, God created man in his own image. Underline that part. This means that we've been uniquely crafted by the very hand of God to reveal intricate and beautiful details about him. From your shape to the way you walk and talk to the way you think and dream to the way you see and breathe. All of this has been designed in a way that reflects what our God is like and it's beautiful. We didn't start off as unintelligible creatures and then over millions of years accidentally evolve into what we are today. No, God created us in his image. Therefore, our identity can never be in things like the language we speak or where we were born or the color of our skin or how quickly our brain can process information or even the build of our body. No, all of these things are like glimmers on a diamond as you hold it up and spin it around. It has different shapes, different cuts, different beautiful pictures, but no one thing defines the diamond. God defines us. It's this truth that gives human beings ultimate meaning and worth. But if you remove this truth, now human beings must find meaning and worth in some other way. That's exactly what we see happening. That's number two. Number three, male and female, he created them. Again, God is the designer of two sexes, male and female. We can naturally observe the way he did this by giving man a stronger, more rigid body and woman a weaker, softer body. He gave man a deeper voice with more command and woman a gentler voice with more compassion. He gave man the desire to move towards danger to protect and woman the discernment and smarts to move away and protect her own. And there are plenty more obvious and naturally observable differences between men and women and they're all beautiful. If anything I said offends you, it shouldn't. I've told you this before. My children don't need to go running headlong into every problem they face. They need their mama's wisdom sometimes to go, you know what? I'm just going to back out of this one. 
We need the beauty of these two distinct, equal, but different designs that God has given us in man and woman. This is why we are complementarians. We believe man and woman complement one another with their unique abilities and capabilities. Design. That's number three. And number four, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. This is what some call the supreme cultural mandate. Men and women are supposed to use their unique reproductive organs in the confines of a monogamous marriage to reproduce offspring. And you know what this does? This fills the earth with little image bearers of our God. I don't know if any of you have ever been to somewhere like India or a temple uh, of some pagan religion, but if you walk in temples in India, you see all of these idols everywhere. And there's all kinds of shapes and forms and different idols that show their gods. And our God says, you better not have an idol because you are my image. This is our God. He created us in his image. And we display him to the whole world through creation and procreation, those kind of things. And so this is the cultural mandate that we have. So this is God's design. Very simple in four points. It's beautiful. It's glorious. And it works. It works. And yet, we have all rejected it. From finding our identity in other things to lusting after others who aren't our spouse to having romantic relations with the same sex to desiring to dress up like the opposite sex even to see how it feels. We all have rejected God's good design in some way or another. But now our culture is taking it one step further. They are and have been normalizing the rejection of God's design. In fact, now as we mentioned earlier in Canada, making legislation that calls God's design a myth or superstition. So what I just told you, those four points I just told you, it is becoming commonplace to think that that is a myth. That's superstition. Silly. But there's no hope in this kind of mindset. No hope. Humans are not autonomous. Humans barely live 80 years, yet God's image bearers have become so prideful, so arrogant, that they think they know better than an eternal God who created them, than the eternal God. So let me just step back a minute from the weight and, uh, and, and bring, try to bring that, that, that ridiculousness home. <laughs> you older folks in the room. How silly do you find it when a 20-year-old or maybe even a teenager talks to you as if they know all about life? How silly do you find that? Like, <laughs> you just stand there and you're just like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you got it. That's it. You've cracked the code, man. 
You did it at 16. You did it. Congratulations, right? We find this ridiculous. We find this ridiculous. Doesn't matter how much books they've read. Doesn't matter how much hit, how much how much history they've studied. When I was a student pastor at First Baptist Oxford, uh, Keith McCullough, some of you know him, he used to tell his kids that are in my youth group at the time, if Corey is talking to you about anything other than the Bible, do not listen to him. <laughs> so he used to tell them. And this is because I was a 20-year-old. I didn't have kids. I knew very little about life. And I'm not speaking as all of a sudden I know a lot about life now. I'm only 32 but I'm talking about the Bible, so you should listen. <laughs> Seriously, take that example, that finite example. Can you imagine the anger God must have towards wicked rebels who he created, and in return, they want to arrogantly assume a better way for life? They want to tell him what's best for them. Now, the truth is that this isn't new to 2022. Humans have always been rebelling against God and his design since the fall. But this kind of lewd and rebellious behavior has, for the most part, always been in the shadows. It's always been hidden. Like we even see in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sin against God, what do they do? They go hide. They knew it was wrong. They knew what they did was offensive to God. And that's what's so different in 2022. A rejection of God's design for biblical sexuality isn't happening in the shadows anymore. It's being put on front stage for all to see. And not only is it being put on front stage, it's being normalized in our schools, in our homes, through entertainment, and in our communities. And to go one step further, pseudoscientists are developing theories about sex and gender that will be taught in our education systems. And rejecting these scientific theories will make you like the fool who doesn't believe in dinosaurs. But why are these theories so different than the science about dinosaurs? Well, science on dinosaurs is based on fossils, objective evidence that shows that there were once some rather large creatures roaming the earth. However, science on sex and gender goes something like this. Sex is defined as a classification based on your reproductive organs, but gender is defined as a person's self-presentation, or in simple terms, what the person deems himself to truly be. So the fact that one has male genitals does not necessarily mean that that one is male. And according to this new legislation, it's a myth or superstition that male is even preferred over said gender. So you see what's happening here. What one believes is what one is. And to say otherwise is to reject science. This is very confusing, and I believe that's part of the point. Earlier we read the passage that Satan is the father of lies. He'll do anything he can to distort the truth. Because in the truth is life, and apart from it is death. 
And Satan just wants to watch the whole world burn. That's what he wants. So what's the way forward? Where is the hope? How do we live as Christians faithfully and speak truth lovingly into our culture that is quickly being led astray? We'll turn to our last stop, Titus 2. took me a while to pick this ending passage as I was preparing, but I think that this passage just gets at the hope that Jesus gives us. So Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 15 says this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things exhort and rebuke with all authority let no one disregard you so first as we close the good news of the gospel is that jesus has freed us from our feelings he's freed you from your feelings parents now this is uh i took this away from a mentor of mine uh in richmond he he would always tell his kids growing up when they said, well, I just want to do it. I just feel like doing this. He would look at him and he'd say, well, the good news is you don't have to act how you feel. You don't have to follow those feelings. That's the good news. And that's what we should teach our kids. Just because you feel some certain way doesn't mean you're a slave to that feeling. Right? Jesus has freed us from our feelings. When we repent of our rebellion and trust him, he is faithful to save us from sin and death. And then he gives us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit trains us to renounce ungodliness and those passionate feelings that rage inside of us. So I want you to know this morning that if you're struggling with homosexual desires or you're struggling to accept your God-given sex or you're struggling with lust for someone who's not your spouse, or you're struggling with selfishness, greed, or pride, there is hope for you in Jesus. His Holy Spirit is so powerful, powerful enough to raise the Son of God from the dead, powerful enough to bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life, and powerful enough to wage war against those desires of your flesh so that you don't do what you want to do. <laughs> That's good news. You're not in this fight alone. And no one's telling you to hold on tighter or get more white-knuckled. We're telling you to trust Jesus. We're telling you to trust his spirit. It's powerful. Hope is found in Jesus who gave himself for you to redeem you and purify you. Purify you. And this is Jesus' call to you this morning. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself 
and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. See how much different Jesus' call to you is than the world's call to you? The world says love yourself. And Jesus says deny yourself. The world says embrace your sinful passions because that's who you are. But Jesus says that's not who you have to be. Jesus wants to free you from being a slave to your feelings that will never be satisfied. They won't ever be satisfied. And if you're searching for true, your true self in anything other than the one who is truth, then you will live all of your days and even eternity dissatisfied. Listen to the harsh reality in Revelation 18. It says, the fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and all your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. Can you imagine eternally being dissatisfied? Eternally just, just wanting something, feeling, craving? Eternal hell will be like that. If you chase these feelings, if you go after this temptation that the evil one is presenting you, this world is being led around by the nose of the father of lies, constantly chasing mirages of hope that are not found in this world. There's no hope apart from Jesus. And secondly, from this passage, Titus says, church, that we must declare these things. Declare these things. Shout from the rooftops as we sing, from the mountains about this hope. Be bold about this hope. We must preach the gospel on this issue. Must be bold and winsome, showing the confused world a better way for their sexuality. Because this world's way leads to death. Let me give you a statistic. 41% of people who have undergone a sex change have committed suicide. 40 Searching for hope. Searching. Maybe if I just maybe if I just change my anatomy to the way I feel, this will complete me. 41% says it didn't, and now I'll just die. See how desperate this world is? And our culture is going even further. Like, I'm hearing people on regular television, cable television, say things like, having a gender reveal for your unborn child is ridiculous. You don't know what gender that child's going to be. It'll take that child till they're at least six to figure that and decide that for their own. Church, if we love our neighbors, we will speak out with kindness and clarity that any parent who allows their child such decisions has fallen into a heinous cultural and political trap. This is not love. It's not love to let your child decide based on their feelings what they truly are. It's not love. But you must understand 
that your neighbor and your coworker and your family member who are struggling with their gender identity or sexual orientation are just trying to make sense of the feelings that they have. That's what they're trying to do. And it's so important that we don't pretend as if those feelings are foreign to us. They're not. At their base, they're not. We do see in scriptures that acting on such feelings is a clear abomination. But remember, church, the lost are blind. They're blind. On the surface, it seems like you're telling them to reject reality and suppress their feelings in order to conform to some antiquated fundamentalist way of living. And we must help them see that while the way of Jesus is the old path, it's the best path. It's the most freeing path. It's the, it's the most liberating path. It's the path where we will find wholeness. The world has a way, church, of making evil look sexy and appealing while making good look boring and dull. And therefore, we must be winsome as we tell them about our high priest, Jesus, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses and who in every respect has been tempted with, as we are, yet without sin. And so desiring to save us from the righteous wrath of God, he suffered on our behalf that we could be forgiven and that we could be set free from the power and bondage of sin. And Grace Fellowship, lastly, I pray that those who struggle with issues of sexuality would find a home in our body where it's safe for them to struggle with temptation. Not with sin, with temptation. Because the good news of the gospel is that we have been freed from our feelings that are seeking to kill us. But that freedom does not come without a daily fight of self-denial, repentance, and faith that are all gifts from God. So we have this message that the world desperately needs they're literally grasping at straws for meaning. I pray that you won't be silent, that I won't be silent, that we would be bold about this good news. Let's pray. God, I know your heart breaks to see people created in your image so messed up, so confused about life. God, I pray that we we would share your heart and our hearts would break not just on this issue of confusion of sexuality but on all sin God God, we do thank you that by your word you have opened our eyes.
and now we can see. We once were blind, now we can see. The truth has set us free. Thank you, Jesus. Oh, God. Let us not be like that man who had his debts forgiven and then would not forgive others because he had already quickly forgotten what it was like to be a debtor and to owe a debt he couldn't pay. God, let us look at this world with compassion and love and speak in truth and boldness about what's right and good, especially on this topic of sexuality. No matter what it cost us, ostracization from a workplace, friends, God, I pray that we would be bold as lions and gentle as doves. God, we do pray um, that amidst the rampant wickedness of this sin and how it's being normalized, that we as your people would find somewhere in there a foothold for the gospel. Somewhere in there leverage that we could help people to see in their desperation that you are our only hope. And I pray, God, that we would, uh, we would see many people come to faith who struggle in these disordered ways and you would bring so much glory to yourself, God, by their testimony. God, you are good, and we love you, and we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word that instructs us and teaches us, purifies us. Thank you for the songs that we've sung today. God, we ask you to be with those who are sick in our congregation today. We ask, God, that you would heal them. And we ask, God, that you would now keep your hand upon us, make your face shine upon us as we leave. In Jesus' name.